Please, in your Bibles, do turn back to Romans 14 and have it open in front of you. I'll just pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is perfect, that it is inerrant, that it is true. Lord, we thank you that it is powerful. And Lord, we ask this morning that we would be changed by it and made more Christ-like and more loving towards one another, that we would not leave the same as how we came in. Lord, we ask your blessing upon your word. And Lord, upon me as well as I preach it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes small problems can become massive, damaging issues. You might have seen in the news this week that the Glasgow School of Arts burnt down again. And it's only a few years since the last time it was on fire. And we don't know the cause of the most recent burning, but... The last time it was because down in the basement there was a student art exhibition. There was a projector that was left on for too long. It got too hot and there were some flammable substances next to it which set alight. Now, the fire spread through the basement, but unfortunately they were installing a new sprinkler system at the time which hadn't been turned on yet. So what turned into what was a small fire downstairs soon spread and became a major inferno which gutted the entire building. Because there were not precautions or ways of stopping it in place, a small problem soon caused massive damage. And in the passage that we've got this morning in our reading from Romans, Paul faces a similar problem, something which seems like a very small issue has potential to cause massive damage. In fact, we're even told towards the end of the passage, it could destroy brothers and sisters in the faith. So just before we get to that, let's just remember what we've seen so far in Romans. In the first part of Romans, we've seen Paul teach the gospel, the fact that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice. Later on, then he said, who is saved? And he said the fact that people have come from both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds to become one group in Christ, one church, Jews and Gentiles together. And then he's then moved on at the beginning of chapter 12 onto the practical implications of that. What does that look like as we live out our lives? It means that we now live as one united family. It means that we now have a debt of love to one another, that we can't just ignore one another and then suddenly we hit this problem this roadblock it would seem now the problem doesn't seem very big it's that there are arguments over three things over whether or not it's okay to eat certain meats over what the religious calendar should be like and also whether or not we can drink wine. And it seems to be that it's the Jewish believers, the Jewish Christians who are struggling with these issues. Imagine 
first century Rome. It is not a pleasant place to be. It is an oppressive atmosphere. If you are Jewish, then you've probably been oppressed in Rome and you would have been brought up with a very strong sense of your Jewish heritage. You would have been brought up to know all of the festivals. You would have been brought up to follow the law of kosher and the food laws perfectly. You probably would have even been brought up on the stories from the Old Testament of heroes of the faith, People like Daniel and his three friends who, when they lived in pagan Babylon, refused to eat any meat or drink any wine and lived only on vegetables to make sure that they kept pure and holy for the Lord. And so here are these Jews. They've been living under pressure. They hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's not that they do not believe the gospel. They do. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. They are precious to the Lord. The passage makes that very clear. The problem is it's going to take a long time for them to unlearn all of the instincts and the issues which they've grown up with. You know, it's not going to be overnight that they're going to get comfortable with the idea of pork chops being in the kitchen cabinet. All right? It's just not going to happen that way. So here is Paul. He wants unity in the church. And so he's saying to them in verse 1 of this passage, accept him whose faith is weak. Welcome him in. Don't keep him at a distance. And don't just have him in so you can debate these issues with him to cause arguments, but really welcome him. In fact, verse 3 says, accept him because the Lord has accepted this brother or sister already. This person is loved by God. You must love them as well. See the problem in verse 2. Those Christians who consider themselves strong, who knew their freedom they have in Christ, they knew passages from the Gospels, things like Jesus said that he declared all food clean, And they knew they had this liberty to eat whatever they wanted. What happens? They see a Christian who isn't living that way and they look down upon them. And then what does verse 2 also say? The weaker brother does the most natural thing in the world. When you think you're being looked down on, isn't it normal that you push back? And so the weaker brother then judges the stronger brother. You know the kind of attitude of says, oh, you guys think you can do whatever you want, but that's not the case at all. I'm keeping myself holy for God. It's me. Why is it always our group who have to keep the standards high? Why can't you guys live fully for the Lord? They judge their stronger brother who's enjoying their liberty. So you then have this conflict in the church between these two groups. Now, again, I just want to emphasize this is not about legalism. Legalism is condemned in the New Testament. In his letter to Galatians, Paul writes to a church which has been taken over by legalists. And they are people who say, not simply that they don't want to eat pork and things like that, but who say, you cannot be saved unless you follow the Old Testament law, unless you're a man and you're circumcised, unless you fully refuse to eat these meats. Paul is here not dealing with that kind of issue. I once heard of a minister 
in a church in the United States who was invited to preach at a much more traditional church than he was used to. And they asked him, would you be prepared to wear a Genevan teaching gown? Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a Genevan teaching gown. It's like a big black robe that you wear over the top of a suit and tie. And the man asked, do I have to wear that? And they said, well, you don't have to, but we'd prefer it if you did. And so the minister replied, well, in that case, then I will. You see, if they said to him, you must wear it, you're not qualified to be a preacher unless you dress in this way, they would have said, he would have said, no way, that's a completely unbiblical command. But because it was a preference, he was willing to bear with them even though he didn't fully agree with what they were asking of him. So there's a big difference between legalism and somebody who's struggling to accept all the freedoms which they have in Jesus Christ. We're told in verse 3 that God has accepted this brother. That's the basis for everything else which Paul is going to say in this section. Remember what Paul has already said in Romans chapter 3? Jesus Christ came as a propitiation. He came as the one who died for the sins of his people, Jew and Gentile alike, so that they will be justified before God. So that when God sees them, they will be righteous in his sight. Therefore, they have already been accepted by God because of what Jesus has done. And so Paul says, if God has done that for them, we as Christians must do the same for those we differ with. It's as simple as that. And then he goes on to expand that issue, to explore it further under two more sections in the first part. Firstly, he points out the fact that in verses 4 to 9, both of them, both the stronger brother and the weaker brother, are living for the Lord. They both have Jesus Christ as their Lord. Therefore, it doesn't matter too much if the older brother, if the, sorry, if the stronger person in the family of Christ agrees totally with everything the weaker one does because the weaker one is not there to please the stronger one. Both are there to serve Jesus. That's the main thing that should be concerning both of them. We see that in verse 4. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, the example then that Paul uses here is the example of the calendar. He, one man considers one day sacred, another man considers all days to be the same. Now, it's not here talking about meeting for worship on a Sunday, about the Sabbath, because Paul seems to be making very clear this is about the Old Testament Jewish calendar and the Sabbath, our Sunday worship, doesn't come from the Old Testament law. It comes all the way from creation. It's a part of the creation itself that we are made to work six days and have one day of rest. This is not what that's referring to. But it's talking about all the other things that you would expect in the religious calendar of the Jews. So Passover wonderful celebration of God's people coming out of Exodus or the day of atonement the day they knew their sins were paid for and you can imagine that if you've grown up celebrating these things every single year suddenly it's going to feel very weird 
to suddenly have a year where you don't remember these days. We still have this in the church today sometimes. I became a Christian, or sorry, I was baptised, I should say, in an Anglican church, which was full of days <laughs> around the times of the year. It was, you know, there was the celebration of Pentecost. There was the celebration of All Saints Day. All of these things happened in the church calendar. Now, we are free as Christians to agree or disagree on those things. I personally do not celebrate Pentecost anymore. I'm convinced that there is no need for it. I know Christians who personally would not celebrate Christmas. But if that is your viewpoint, then it is your job to make sure that you've, you're doing that in worship to the Lord. You're not doing that simply because you want to be a pain or simply to be awkward. That's what it's talking about here. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who, who, he who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. The idea here is that because Jesus is the Lord and the master of all of his people, whatever it is that we do has to be for his glory and in his service. It's not a first duty to ourselves. It is always to him. And it is before him that we must have a clear conscience. So that's why then we follow straight on from that then with verses 10 to 12, where it is made very clear that ultimately, not only is Jesus our Lord, he's also our judge. Jesus will one day judge us for all of the things that we have done, both good and bad. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we all stand before God's judgment seat. Every single one of us will answer to God. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, that's a wonderful thing, because you'll see Jesus face to face the first time, and you will see the one who died for your sins. Now, if you're not a Christian, that could be a very scary prospect. It will be a very scary prospect. It's why Paul then reads out this passage from verse 11. He reads out this uh, section of Isaiah. As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. That section of Isaiah is a section where Isaiah is calling on all the nations to come to God now while they can before Jesus returns. Everybody will bow before God and say that he is Lord. Some of them will say it gladly, Jesus is Lord. And some of them will say it with deep anguish. Oh, Jesus really is Lord and it is too late. But here, Paul is using that passage from Isaiah and he's putting it here to make it very clear to all of us that we should not be judging each other because we have no right to do that. Because the one that we all answer to is not the person next to me on a Sunday, but to Jesus himself. Now, if you take those three things together, our acceptance by God, our fact that Jesus is our Lord, and the coming judgment, what does it mean then when we as a Christian 
look down upon another Christian. If we say, I'm not going to accept somebody because they have a different view on something in the church. Now, I'm not talking here about essentials to the gospel, but a different view on maybe Christmas or a different view on whether or not it's okay to watch certain types of films. I have a friend who personally refuses to watch any film which is rated over 18. That's his conscience. It's not one that I personally agree with totally, but that is what he chooses to do. I have another friend who is a complete teetotaler, would refuse to touch any alcohol. I don't think the Bible demands that of me. But again, it's not my place to look down on him for it. Because if I say to them, I won't admit you because of these issues, I'm claiming that I know better than God who admitted them in. Or if I say to somebody, look, you're making me really unhappy on the fact that you're doing that. It's not a biblical issue, but it's making me unhappy. You should change your behavior to make me happy. I'm claiming to be their Lord and that they should serve me. Or if I judge somebody and I say, this person isn't keeping to the standards that I want to keep to. This person isn't doing the things the way that I want them to do. I'm not even sure how, long, how much longer they're going to be a Christian over things which, again, are not biblical issues, then I am placing myself in the place of Jesus as their judge. It's not simply that these things are unloving to one another. It's the fact that these things are blasphemous because we're taking the place of God in these people's lives. We must love one another whether we consider somebody to be a stronger brother or a weaker brother, whether somebody is enjoying freedoms which we ourselves can't sign up to, or not we think somebody's being too conservative. We must love them. That's what we're called to do as Christians. That's the first half of this passage. And that, as you like, is the groundwork. It's the theory. And then we come to the practice in the second half. Looking from verses 13 to 23. Now, maybe the slightly surprising thing here is that Paul's remarks in verses 13 to the end of the chapter are aimed mostly at the stronger Christian. Before, he's been talking to both the weak and the strong Christian. And here, he is now talking to the strong Christian. Because the strong should be people who care for the week in the church of Christ. Some of you might do the park run. I know that at least one or two of you do. If you don't know what it is, on a Saturday morning, it's a five-kilometer run round a park. And you get time for it, you get your times at the end. But the way it works is that some of the best runners each week drop out to volunteer. And they stand as marshals at the toughest part of the track so that the weaker runners will be encouraged when they're struggling in their weakness. And the person at the back of the run who walks at the slowest pace does so to make sure that there's nobody who's left behind. Now, that's a non-Christian organization. And even they have recognized the fact that some of the people who are the fastest, the quickest, need to make sacrifices to look after those runners who are 
the weakest and the slowest. If you're not into running, then think perhaps of the World War II aid convoys which came from the United States to Britain. Big cargo ships would be escorted by destroyers and other warships who were capable of going much faster than the cargo ships. But the point is that they went at a slower speed to protect and guard them because they knew that if they didn't, the cargo ships would be sunk. They didn't just look out for their own needs, they looked out for others as well. And that's what happens. If you're a strong Christian, if you consider yourself to be a strong Christian, you must look out for the needs of the weak and the struggling in the congregation around you. Even if you think that they are conservative, even if you think that they don't do things you'd like them to do, still your job to look out for each other. So um, just have a look down this passage with me. I just want to point out a couple of things to you because it doesn't go in a straight line. Please just do have a little look at your Bibles. Look at verse 13, for example. In verse 13, it talks about not putting a stumbling block in anybody's way. And then in verse 21, it says, don't make your brother fall. In verse 14, it talks about things which are unclean. And then in verse 20, it again then talks about things which are clean. And in verse 15 and 16, it talks about destroying your brother. And then in verses 19 and 20, it says about destroying the work of God. The passage doesn't go in a straight line. Instead, it mirrors each, each side of it. One thing, then another. Then the middle part, coming towards a center, the core point which Paul wants us to get to. So let's just go through those three things together now. First of all, in verses 13 and 14, and 22 and 23, the two which mirror each other, are really to do with conscience. Let's do with how you handle each other's consciences. So you must never put pressure on a fellow Christian to do something which they are not sure about. Verse 13, when it says, let us stop passing judgment on one another, instead make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way, the word there for make up your mind is the same word used for judgment. It's as if it's saying, if you want to really judge something, judge your own mind and decide that you're not going to be somebody who trips up your fellow believers in the church. Don't break somebody else's conscience. If they do not want to do something and they're not required to by scripture, don't force them to do it. It's as simple as that. If you are somebody who drinks alcohol and you are having a teetotal around for dinner, there's no need for you to serve wine if you know it's going to hurt that person's faith. In fact, Verse 22 puts it in very strong terms. Whatever you believe about these things, keep them between yourself and God. It's not just don't do these things, but even your own opinions don't always have to be shared. Not everything that you think needs to come out of your mouth on every issue. 
when you're dealing with others in the church. That's how we deal with consciences. Well then, verses 15 to 16 and verses 19 to 21 deal then with the love towards each other. Look again, please, at 15 and 16. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat or what you're doing, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. And then again, in verses 19 to 21. Make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Edification means to build somebody up. And therefore, we have this very powerful picture of our actions either being something which could build up a fellow believer in Christ, which could turn a weak brother over time into a strong believer, able to enjoy all the freedoms which they have in Jesus, or our actions going the opposite way and us destroying them and tearing them down. It's the choice that you need to make. Do you want to build each other up or do you want to tear each other down? And then finally, um, lastly then, what is at the core of all of this? What is perhaps the thing that we don't expect to see? Verses 17 and 18. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. See, Paul wants us to realize that how we act with each other is how everybody around us sees the kingdom of God. That we as Christians are not called to a life of just eating and drinking. The external things, the way we dress, what we do with our time should not get in the way of the eternal things of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, the things which Christ died to give us. See, if we serve Christ by keeping the unity of the church, then we are fulfilling what Paul has commanded us to do earlier on in chapter 12. When Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to Christ, for this is good and pleasing to God. And then here he says, anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. This is what Paul means. If we want to be living sacrifices, and it's not simply on the tough issues of the day, it's in the everyday life of the church, how we relate to one another, how we talk to one another, how we eat and drink together. These are the things which really make a difference. This is how people will see that the kingdom of God has come. If I was to ask you today, how do we glorify God in the church? There are loads of answers that you could give. You could say, we, we glorify God when we pray to him, which is true. You could say, we glorify God when we sing his praises, which is true, we do. But one of the main ways which we glorify God as the church 
is by witnessing to the fact that people from different backgrounds and different circumstances have been made one people in Christ and are now under his holy reign. We witness to God when we act like we truly are being reigned under Christ's kingship. When we act as if the kingdom of heaven is here. And when we don't do that, we dishonor God and we disgrace ourselves. So how do we relate to each other as brothers and sisters in the faith? Do we do it by asserting our rights, our freedoms? Christ has said that all foods are clean, therefore I can eat whatever I want. The Bible says I'm allowed to drink alcohol, therefore I can drink whatever I want whenever I like. The Bible says nothing about entertainment, therefore it's up to me to choose what I want or dress however I like. No. In all these things, we do them in the service of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we do it out of love and compassion for those around us in the church. Let us pray.